0: As we come to Daniel chapter 9 this week, we find Daniel immersed in God's Word. He's reading the Bible. Specifically, Daniel tells us in the first few verses that he's reading the prophet Jeremiah and he's reading about the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, we find this prophecy against God's people and the land of Judah. Jeremiah says, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and, the, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making an everlasting waste. Daniel was poring over these words because he himself had been in Babylon as an exile for almost 70 years. And recently, the Persians had come and conquered the Babylonian Empire under King Darius, or as he's more commonly known, Cyrus the Great. And so Daniel's watched these events unfold, and he's seen the defeat of the Chaldeans, he's seen the approach of his 70 years in Babylon, and he... Knowing God's word, sees that the time is near for the end of Jerusalem's desolation. And so in response to what he's witnessed and what he's read, he seeks the Lord in prayer. Most of Daniel chapter 9 is his prayer to the Lord about the plight of Israel And it's a prayer that's full of confessions of sin and pleas for mercy, as Daniel describes them. As we've already seen, Daniel's prayer is motivated by God's word. And it's not merely a prayer for relief from the consequences of sin, but it's a prayer for God to show himself to be righteous and merciful, to make his name known among the nations, by restoring the people who are called by God's name. So Daniel's prayer is rooted in his profound understanding of who God is and what he's done on behalf of his people. This morning we're going to study this prayer, and by studying it, learn ourselves how we can pray. But as we look at this prayer, we see that it's a, it's a unique prayer. Its time and its occasion are singular in where they fall in redemptive history, in God's work of salvation. So there's a sense in which this prayer is unrepeatable, even as we learn from it. And the uniqueness of Daniel's prayer is made clear in the way that God answers the prayer. Because as Daniel is praying, the angel named Gabriel is sent by Daniel To tell him that God has heard his prayer and that Daniel is greatly loved and God has a word that he's decreed because of Daniel's prayer. God's word goes out with a new prophecy concerning the restoration of Jerusalem, the very thing that Daniel is praying about. And that's what we find in the last eight verses of this chapter is the prophecy that God issues in response to Daniel's prayer. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that none of us have had an angel visit us as we prayed, as the end of our prayer. We got an angel there telling us, well, here's the answer to your prayer. I don't think any of us have had that experience. This is a unique thing that's happening in Daniel's life and really in salvation history. Now, this prophecy is difficult and complicated. Some of the most complicated words in the book of Daniel... And even so, its meaning is clear. And the meaning is that God is going to answer Daniel's Daniel's prayer about Jerusalem, but he's going to answer it in a way that's far beyond what Daniel could have asked or imagined. He's going to bring a permanent end to Israel's sin, such that God's righteousness will be established forever. We're going to try to look at all that this morning and learn four lessons for how we ourselves can pray from Daniel's prayer. Even though this is a unique place in salvation history, the Lord would teach us from this prayer. So here are the four lessons. We should pray according to God's word. Pray according to God's word. We should pray for God's concerns. Third, we should pray according to God's character. And fourth, we should pray based on God's covenant. Now, if I were like a major league preacher, that first one would have had another C, but I couldn't come up with one. So we've got one W and three Cs. Pray according to God's word. Pray for God's concerns. Pray according to God's character. And pray based on God's covenant. Let's go ahead and read the prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, you can find this on pages 746 and 47 of the Bibles provided. Listen to God's word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by Descent Amede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years That according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquity and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy, your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is God's word. We've already started to see the way that Daniel prayed according to God's word. He's pouring over these pages from Jeremiah. But it's helpful to go a little deeper and to see exactly how scripturally rooted is Daniel's prayer. He wasn't just picking a few verses out of context from Jeremiah when he started praying. Though Daniel was a good and excellent reader of scripture, he knew all of God's word or all that was available to him. He hadn't just gone hunting for a verse in Jeremiah that he could apply to his situation. You see, from the very beginning of God's covenantal relationship with Israel, he had revealed his law to them, he had revealed the blessings that would come if they kept his covenant, and he'd also revealed the curses that would come upon them if they broke his covenant. For an early example of this that seems to be cited by this chapter, we could look to the book of Leviticus. So the book of Leviticus is mostly focused on God's rules about his holiness And these rules about God's holiness were intended to teach Israel that if they wanted to enjoy the blessings of God's presence, then they had to be holy as God is holy. And God prescribed the rituals by which what was unclean and unholy could become holy and so the people could be cleansed and draw near to God. Well, near the end of this book of Leviticus in chapter 26, the Lord reminds them of the blessings that will come if they walk in his holy ways and the curses that will come upon them if they neglect his holy ways. So here's a flavor of that in Leviticus twenty-six, fourteen through 16. The Lord says, If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eye and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. The Lord pronounces judgment upon them. The Lord doesn't stop there, though, in the book of Leviticus. He plays out the scenario further. He imagines what it would be like if they not only disobey, but they continue to disobey even after he comes to them and rebukes them. And he describes the very scenario that Daniel finds himself in, where God's cities of the land are laid waste. Now remember, this book of Leviticus is given to them while they're in the wilderness, not yet in the land, but but again, the Lord games out what's going to happen. So in verse 27 of chapter 26, we find the following. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins." then skipping down to verses 38 and 39 the lord says and you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up and those you have those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers they shall rot away like them you do hear in the in the in the prayer of daniel how he prayed and confessed the sins of the fathers and he he talked about being in Babylon, and, and that's, that's the context. Israel's rotting away in their enemies' lands. So way back in Leviticus, God prophesies what's going to happen. The people aren't even in the land. He talks about them being judged from the land and, and rotting away in their enemies' lands, just as what's happened in Nebuchadnezzar's rule. As God gave Israel over to Nebuchadnezzar, this has come upon Israel. But by God's grace, that's not where Leviticus ends. Even after God games it all the way out to the exile, he says this in chapter 26, verses 40 through 42. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then... I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. So Daniel confesses the sins of the fathers with the very same language, the language of treachery that Leviticus prescribes. When he prays his prayer in Daniel 9, he's not just picking up a random verse about Babylon and Jerusalem and Jeremiah's prophecy. He's praying according to what God revealed in his word about the relationship between God and his people at the outset. We might say Daniel is praying with the grain of God's word. We find the same theme picked up elsewhere in scripture. So, so later, after the people are in the land, when they've built the temple and they're dedicating to the temple, King Solomon prays. And just like in Leviticus, he prays for the Lord's presence, but he also games out what might happen one day to God's people, if they repeatedly sin. Let me read a few verses from First Kings chapter eight, beginning in verse 46. Solomon's praying, "If they, His people, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, And you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, then hear in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. I'm skipping down to verse 53. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord our God. So Daniel picks up again the language of Solomon, calling Moses his servant, even using the, the same words to talk about Israel's sin. King Solomon basically describes what Daniel will one day do, and Daniel prays according to what King Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8. He prays according to God's word. And then remember that we know Daniel read Jeremiah. We already quoted from Jeremiah 25, but there's another chapter in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, that was sent as a letter to the Babylonian exile. So Daniel would have for sure received this. And we read there in Jeremiah 29.10. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Daniel prayed, believing in the promise of Jeremiah 29. We read in chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 3, that he sought the Lord with pleas for mercy and prayer. You see, when we learn from Daniel how to pray according to God's word, we learn to be readers of the whole of the scriptures. We learn to see how the different parts of the scriptures fit together to make one grand revelation of God's saving work. It's true that our place in salvation history is different than Daniel's, but the same principle still applies. We need to understand the ups and downs of God's work among his people, and we need to understand how we fit in to God's work among his people. When we read in this way, we avoid taking verses out of context. How many of you heard Jeremiah 29, 11, taken out of context? I know the plans I have for you, right? Do we, know, we always hear that quoted as if, oh, this is to a people in exile who have sinned against the Lord, No, we don't, right? It's just usually a a feel-good text about God has a plan for my life. Well, we cannot do that by learning to read the Bible the way Daniel did. If you want to improve your prayer life, then seek to grow as a student of God's Word. Pay careful attention, even to the sermons you hear, where we try to model carefully understanding and applying God's Word to our lives. Not misusing the Bible. You might grow by picking up a book on biblical theology, maybe something that Nancy Guthrie writes or by Graham Goldsworthy, where they try to help you see the whole storyline of Scripture and how the whole story points to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Read the Bible for yourself, read it with other brothers and sisters. Read the Bible, and, or pick a book of the Bible, and try to outline it for yourself. Understand how the structure of the book goes together. Devote yourself to becoming an excellent reader of the Bible, and you will grow in your prayer life. You will grow in your ability to pray with the grain of God's word. So that's one way Daniel teaches us to pray according to God's word, but I want to look at another before we move off this point. You see, we see that Daniel understood that in God's word, God reveals his law. God gave us his law to instruct us in righteousness and to convict us of sin. And so he confesses in verse 5, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. You see that Daniel does not create his own standard for himself. Nor does he adopt the moral standards of Babylon or his own culture. Instead, he looked in God's word and saw the commandments of God, and he saw the way Israel turned away again and again. Not only had they refused to obey God's word, but Daniel notes God's great mercy, how God was patient and forgiving, and how God sent his servants, the prophets, to specifically tell them, here are the ways you've broken God's law. And Israel ignored these prophets as well. I think this is another way Daniel would teach us to read God's word. We might call the first way the 30,000-foot the th- view, the view you get from the airplane, seeing the whole story of Scripture and how it points to Christ. The second way is, is more granular or close-up and personal. We see how God specifically convicts us and teaches us in his law God's word calls us out in our rebellion this way of reading God's word should teach us to pray as well pray according to God's word by examining your heart and your life in light of God's word allow the law of God to lead you in your confession of sin isn't that what Daniel does for us He lays his heart in the heart of Israel open to God's law. And where God accuses and where God finds them guilty, Daniel confesses. He confesses their sin. He uses language that's just universal to describe every kind of sin. And he's very clear, this sin indicts every Israelite. Far and near kings and princes, everyone is indicted. And Daniel confesses that to God. This first point that we should pray according to God's word is really an umbrella for all the other points we're going to make today. Everything else falls underneath it. They're just like more specific applications of how we pray according to God's word. So, with that in mind, let's turn to lesson number two. We learned from Daniel to pray for God's concerns. We should pray for God's concerns. The presenting reason for Daniel's prayer is his concern about the desolations of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been laid waste. It's empty. It no longer has the temple where God's worship can take place because it's been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's forces. But Daniel's concern for Jerusalem is not like my concern for Houston. right? He's not just a, a hometown boy. He's longing for the familiar. The reason he is concerned for the city can be seen near the end of his prayer in verse 18. He says, "O oh my God, incline your ear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Jerusalem is important because it is the city to which God has given his name. He's allowed Jerusalem to bear his holy name. It's God's holy city, or as verse 16 puts it, your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, right? We Texans often joke that Texas is God's country, right? But it's it's just a stupid joke, right? God's city was Jerusalem in a very unique way. You can't be very unique. In a unique way, right? Daniel is concerned for Jerusalem because he is ultimately concerned for God's glory, In other words, Daniel's praying according to God's concern. God is concerned for his own glory and honor, and so is Daniel. You can catch another bit of this concern in a couple other places. In in verse 15, Daniel says to the Lord, You made a name for yourself by bringing your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. So God's name, who God is, was revealed to the world it was made known when God graciously saved Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. In that action, God simultaneously judged the sin and death symbolized by Pharaoh, and he saved Abraham's children according to the promises he'd made to Abraham. So he reveals his glorious name. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to know what is God like, what's his name? Look, look to Egypt. His name is Yahweh. His name is the Redeemer. His name is the Father of Israel, His firstborn Son. His name is King and Lawgiver, as He gives them the law at Mount Sinai. We might think of God's glorious name then being Redeemer, Father, Son, I mean Father, King. So it's especially grievous then, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 6, that Daniel has to confess that God's people have not listened to the prophets who spoke in God's name. Their Redeemer God sent his servants to speak to them, servants who bore his name as well. And they added sin upon sin by ignoring those who bore the name of God. The nation was to glorify God's name among the nations by obeying God and trusting in his deliverance. But they trampled on the name of God by ignoring his voice by denigrating his mercy and patience. And so Daniel repeatedly says that to the people belong open shame. They're the shameful, rebellious son. They look to false gods for redemption and salvation. Elsewhere in scripture, they're called God's unfaithful wife. They bear reproach and they deserve it. They're a stinking thing. They've made God's name a mockery among the nations by their rebellion and unbelief. This is what motivated Daniel to pray. He sees that they should have been a glory to God. They should have been that, but they've become a stinking thing in the eyes of God, all the people around them. And so when Daniel comes to make his requests in the prayer, one of the main foundations for his pleas for mercy is for God to Restore the greatness of his name among the nations. Look at how he ends the prayer in verse 19. We get this litany of O Lord's. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Why? Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Think, Lord, it shouldn't be that the people who bear your name in the city you who bear your name lies in reproach and rebellion and stinking thing. Right? This shouldn't be the way it is. His appeal for salvation is for God's own sake, because his people still bear his name, even though they've made a ruin of themselves. His desire is for the glory of God. He laments and confesses the way that God's people have dishonored the name. And so his great plea is that God's name should once again be glorious in the world by God restoring his people and restoring their righteous witness. Isn't this how the Lord himself taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? The first petition is, hallowed be your name. It's a request that God's name should be revered as holy. It's a request that God's people should should honor and reflect God's holy character through their holy lives of faith and obedience. Daniel's prayer is focused on Jerusalem because at this point in time, Jerusalem is the place where God's presence had dwelled. The temple was built there, it was the holy city. But consider what the name of God means today. Where is the name of God most clearly revealed? In the New Testament, God's Name is clearly revealed in the Son of God, the one named Jesus, the Messiah. And Christ's people, who are we? We are people who bear Christ's name. Literally, we call ourselves Christians. We are little Christs. We reflect Jesus to the world. We bear his name. And so God's name is to be hallowed and glorified when his people are call, who are called by his name rest in Christ's saving work, And obey Christ as our exalted king. The name of God is glorified as the gospel is proclaimed and believed. That's true both in our individual lives but throughout the world. So if we want to pray according to God's concerns, we need to ask ourselves, does our prayer time reflect a desire for the glory of Christ's name? When we pray, is that one of the things we pray for? Or are our own requests for things in our personal lives, crowding out any kind of desire for the glory of Christ's name? Do we pray for the spread of the gospel? Do we pray for our own and our church's full submission to Christ as our king and our faith in the gospel? We try to model this concern by the things that we pray for here in our corporate worship services. So, Having a prayer of adoration is a way to pray for the glory of God's name. Praying for gospel concerns like the gospel ministry of churches in our city and around the world or for the work of missionaries who are faithfully spreading the gospel. These are ways that we seek to pray for the glory of Christ's name. So we want to make sure when we're gathered that God's concerns, the glory of his name, that those are our concerns. And we should also want the same thing when we're scattered. We pray for God's concerns, the glory of his name. Very closely related to this lesson is our third lesson that we should pray according to God's character. Pray according to God's character. We see many aspects of God's character highlighted in Daniel's prayer, but I want to just briefly touch on four of them. First, we pray because God is awesome. God is awesome. When Daniel addresses God, he prays to his great and awesome God. Now, the word awesome is a problematic word for us because we casually use it just to mean cool. Like, in the 80s, it was rad. I don't know what kids to say used as a synonym for awesome, but I'm sure it's equally, you know, going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Perhaps we'd be helped by using an older translation. So when the King James translates this verse, it, instead of using the word awesome, it uses the word dreadful. Right? And this refers to the fact that God is so great that to behold God is to tremble. We talked about this a little last week, that when Daniel sees these vision, he, he falls down as if he's struck dead. It has to be revived and strengthened by an angel. That, that's kind of the effect of God's awesomeness, God's dreadfulness. We're really getting at the idea of the fear of God here. I mean, to be careful here, fear does not mean that, as God's people, we should be simply terrified of God. It means, rather, that we recognize his purity and greatness and perfect holiness. So it might be similar to the sense you have when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time or maybe you see one of those astounding images from the James Webb Space Telescope that are coming out of of galaxies with with things that you couldn't have imagined. I heard someone recently describe it perhaps as the feeling you get if you've met, you know, a uh, a famous person that you idolize, maybe an author or a sports figure. You know, if you're shaking Michael Jordan's hand, you just don't want to say anything stupid. Like you may be a little afraid, but not because you're afraid of him. You just want the moment to be meaningful, right? Or, or you're handed a priceless artifact that's irreplaceable from from ancient Egypt, right? You you'd be afraid that you were going to mess it up, right? Well, we we can't do anything to mess God up but we we would approach him with that same kind of awe and wonder, a desire to please him, a desire to to reflect the dignity and gravity of who he is in the way we conduct ourselves. Daniel prays to the awesome God. We should call upon God with the sense that we get to talk to the one who made us, the one who's beyond time and space, who's eternally infinite past and future, the God who holds all things in his hand, who knows all things, who owns all things, the God who is the great king, the God who will judge us. When we pray, we should pray according to his awesomeness. We should have a sense of his dreadfulness, of his greatness. We should pray according to God's character. Second, we should pray according to God's faithfulness. You don't see the word faithfulness mentioned in this prayer, but it's really the foundation of the prayer. Daniel is clear that God keeps his word. He's faithful to his word. Maybe think of this as a reason why you might might not pray. Might you think that God is not faithful, that he doesn't keep his word? Well, the, the evidence here is that no, God does keep his word. Daniel cites the fact that God had announced that if Israel did not keep his law, a great calamity would come upon them. And then he says in verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Right? We, we rehearsed this in Leviticus and Kings and Jeremiah. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. God's word comes true. God does not waste any of his words. They all come true. He keeps them all. So we can look at God's faithfulness in kind of that negative sense. If he promises judgment, judgment will come. But we can also look at God's promise to forgive and restore. The same God who predicted that Israel would stray and, be, and receive his judgment also promised that when they turned with humble heart and they sought the Lord, he would be found by them. We pray because God is faithful. Daniel knows that God is faithful, and that's why he prays in this dark moment. When we pray, we should remember that God is faithful. Third, God is righteous. Daniel confesses that God is righteous to bring judgment upon Israel. He's revealed his righteous law, and Israel has broken it. When Daniel is recounting the great calamity that's come upon Israel in verses 12 and 13, he follows that up in verse 14 by saying, For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. That's just a fundamental dynamic at work here. God, you're righteous. We deserve your judgment that you've brought. This understanding of God's righteousness is the foundation for our repentance, when we re- repent, we agree with God against ourselves that we've committed sin and that our sin deserves God's punishment. We confess, God, you are good to punish sin. You would be good even to send me to hell because of your righteousness. So we should follow Daniel's example and pray according to the righteousness of God. And finally, the fourth characteristics of God is that we should pray because God is merciful. Pray according to the mercy of God. Daniel describes his entire prayer as pleas for mercy. These are his pleas for mercy. And then in the climax of the prayer, verse 18, Daniel says, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. His mercy is more Right? We sung that this morning already. God's mercy is great. Abundant in mercy. He's awesome in mercy. He's full of mercy. If it were not for God's mercy, there'd be no point in Daniel's prayer. If God's justice had exhausted God's character, there'd be no reason for hope. Just waiting around for the condemnation to occur. But from the outset of Israel's story, God has been acting with grace and mercy. Right? Just re- re- recite to yourself the, the story of the fall and the judgment of the flood and Babel. And then why does God call Abram? Because Abraham was so great? Because of his grace and mercy to want to restore humanity. And why does God keep his promises? Because he's a gracious God. He keeps his promises to Abraham through delivering Israel from Egypt. God is full of mercy. And after centuries of rebellion, God sends prophet after prophet in his great mercy and forbearance. And now finally, Daniel here finds himself still appealing to the great mercy of God. God is great in mercy. We can pray today... Because we've received God's mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we too don't come to God pleading our own righteousness, but pleading God's great mercy. So Daniel teaches us to pray according to the word of God, pray for God's causes and God's uh, concerns, and to pray according to the character of God. So where do we see God's character revealed? It's revealed in his covenant love for his people. Daniel prays based on God's covenant. And the entire prayer is rooted in this. So even going back to Leviticus, Leviticus is a, it's a covenant document. It's a document for God's people who've been bought by him in Egypt. We recounted God's covenant love through Leviticus, 1 Kings, and Jeremiah. We could recount it through the whole Old Testament. All of these come are true because God has committed himself in covenant love to his people. And then those commitments took on this legal form in the Law of Moses that we've read about already. The instructions and commands that Israel broke. Daniel prays the way he does because God had made this covenant with his people. And he prays the way he does because Israel has broken the covenant. And within the covenant, God gave Israel a hope for forgiveness after their failure. All of this is part of the covenant itself. This covenant again is rooted in God's grace that began with Abraham. And even when God gives his law, the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, that whole the whole 10 commandments are rooted in a reminder that God has delivered them and saved them because of his redeeming love. So that's the context of the prayer, and then within the prayer Daniel appeals to God's covenant love in verse 16. He remembers that God saved Israel from Egypt in verse 15. And then in verse 16, he says, "O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath be turned away from the city. Well, that's a puzzling thing to pray, right? According to your righteous acts, turn away your anger. Elsewhere, he's prayed, you know, you're righteous and we deserve your judgment. But now he prays for God to turn away his wrath because of his righteousness. What's what's he talking about there? He's talking about God's righteous faithfulness to his own promises. The righteous act that God showed in Egypt, where he delivered people because he made promises to Abraham. Daniel's saying, Lord, according to that same righteous faithfulness, act again for your people. Act again according to your covenant love, which reveals your righteous character. But there's a sense in which, at this very point... Daniel's prayer needs more than the covenant could offer. See, the Mosaic covenant had a way for unrighteous, unholy people to be made righteous, at least in terms of the covenant, in God's sight. There were sacrifices that would would be presented to God to turn away God's wrath so that then the worshiper could fellowship with God and have peace with God. But right now, in Daniel's life, there's no possibility Of such a sacrifice. The holy place is in ruins. There's no temple service available to Daniel or to the people of God. So Daniel pleads the covenant love of God without the covenant rituals prescribed by God. So, what can turn away God's wrath? Well, that brings us to the prophecy. The prophecy, again, is strange and confusing. Many Christians have tried to figure out what these 70 weeks mean. They've come up with ideas, well, maybe it's 490 years because 70 times 7 is 490, but there's really no way you can make sense of 490 years with any of the things that are prophesied. There's debate about who the anointed ones are that are mentioned. There's debate, debate about can we identify this prince with a historical figure like we did last week with Antiochus Epiphanes. There's all sorts of disagreements about this, including even what the strong covenant of verse 27 is. But in spite of all that, as I said... The meaning of the prophecy is clear in that this prophecy concerns the ending of the sin that has desolated Jerusalem and the bringing of God's everlasting righteousness through his anointed one. So with that in mind, let's read this prophecy and consider how this prophecy solved Daniel's problem of an appeal to the covenant without any means of covenant reconciliation. Verses 20 through 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war." Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The essence of this prophecy is that the Lord is answering Daniel's prayer. An end to Jerusalem's desolations is coming there will be a restoration of righteousness. But this good and great news is coming in a much more complicated way than Daniel wanted or expected. Daniel, I think, expected that the end of the Babylonian captivity would be the key that triggers the restoration of Israel, that God would would keep his promises exactly at that moment to bring a full restoration to Israel that's not what's going to happen. Instead, we're going to get this these 70 weeks and things are going to be much more rocky than Daniel had hoped. But it's also going to be much greater than Daniel had hoped. Look again at verse 24 and look at the list of things that God says will come. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and about your holy city. So, right? He's praying for the holy city. Now, here's the answer to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So God's going to put an end to sin. Isn't that Daniel's problem? He wanted an end to sin. He wanted a, a, the wrath of God to be turned away from Israel according to God's righteous acts. God announces, here: here's going to be atonement for Israel's iniquity. And God is going to bring in his everlasting righteousness. God is going to do this through the anointing of this most holy place, it says. It's interesting that this word translated, or the phrase most holy place, can be translated most holy one. It's It's ambiguous. Either way, we don't have any record of the holy place ever being anointed after this point in time. In the rebuilt temple, there was never, there was never a record of anointing. This seems to point to something beyond the, the physical building of Jerusalem. And given the fact that we have the mention of the, holy, the anointed one coming, it seems fair to think this is a picture of Christ, the most holy one, who will bring about this, this end But God is going to put an end to sin. Daniel's prayer will be answered, but it will come with much strife. The prophecy talks about wars, more desolations, another time of, of the temple sacrifice being ended. The bulk of this time is described with the phrase troubled time. It will take place in a troubled time. The key is verse 26. After the end of 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off. Anointed one is the word Messiah but we get the word Christ from. It seems to be that the good news of the end of sin comes through the seemingly terrible news of the cutting off of God's anointed one. How do these prophecies teach us to pray according to God's covenant? Well, they point us to the new covenant established in Christ's blood Jesus is the anointed one who was cut off. But in being cut off, Jesus is also the answer to Daniel's prayer. Right? He's asking for God to turn away his wrath according to his righteous acts. To turn away his wrath from Jerusalem and the iniquities of the fathers. Daniel may not have known it when he was praying, but Jesus is the only possible answer to his prayer. The only way for God's wrath to be poured out and to be turned away from sinners is for the Son of God to take on flesh and to bear the wrath of God in the place for sinners. Here in the crucifixion of God's anointed one, an end is made for sin. Not that no more sin happens, but that sin is fully and finally atoned for by Christ's work. Here is the covenant love of, Christ, of God's, God for his people. The Son of God bears himself the curses of the covenant so that sinners can receive the blessings of the covenant. We can fully and finally become sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so with Daniel, we plead for mercy. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of God's great mercy poured out on us in Jesus Christ. We come to God not because of anything good that we've done, but only because of what Christ has done. He's kept God's covenant for us. The man, Christ Jesus, deserves every covenant blessing. In Daniel's prayer in verse 4, he says, The Lord is the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his covenant. That's terrible news for covenant breakers. But but there is a person, only one, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who ever perfectly loved God and kept his covenant. And the great and awesome God loves him. He is God's beloved son in whom God is well pleased. But God saw fit to pour out his wrath on his beloved son, to cut him off. The covenant curses were poured out on Christ so that believers can receive the blessings of forgiveness and adoption and eternal life in God's kingdom. By faith in Christ, rebellious sinners can become beloved sons. This is the covenant that we pray. We have great reason to pray because Christ has taken our place and absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. And so we pray according to the new covenant in Christ's blood that we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. With confidence, we draw near to God's throne of grace. We stand before God like Daniel, and even more like Jesus, greatly loved. We stand before God as covenant keepers. Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. All of this is because of the gracious work of God in Christ. When we pray according to God's word, we pray to God our Father in the name of the Son who came to save us. When you read a prayer like this, you're no doubt overwhelmed By your own guilt by your own unrighteousness you have no choice we have no choice but to plead with God for mercy but what a great foundation we have for pleading God's mercy we plead the merits of the son so don't trust in your own righteousness don't seek the Lord based on anything you've done but instead seek God's face in the name of Jesus, the anointed one who alone can save. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you desire sinners to come to you and plead for mercy. You are glorified when we cry out to you for mercy in Christ's name. What a wonderful, awesome God you are. We pray that you'll help us to never stop coming to you. We pray that you'll convict us, that your word is true, that your name is glorious, that you are faithful and merciful and righteous. Help us to live in light of your glorious new covenant in Christ. To live as children of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.